I felt that the world was just getting overpowered by a storm of negativity. And with that, a growing sense of impossibility. I have to blame a lot of that on social media that tends to hurt us into like-minded camps where we read like-minded content validated by like-minded people. And what it does is just really fortifies our confirmation biases. From questioning something, we suddenly become angry about something. And we're seeing this across the world, but sadly a lot in our country as well. If you think about it, it's not a person in this room that's not on a journey. We're seeking safety, security, love, belonging, being part of something bigger. We're looking for purpose, passion. Sometimes we're, it's a journey we never asked for. We have to overcome a health crisis or a crisis in our family. Anything we can do to help us get to where we want to go is magical. And that brings me to your theme today, leading and together. And when I saw the word together, I realized there couldn't be anybody more perfect than Pete to join us today. You know, together is such an easy word. I mean, we just, we just throw it out there. But when you think about it, it's becoming harder and harder to really be together. And what it takes is, is it takes something that we all have, but we tend to lose because we're consumed by screens and validation and confirmation and creation. It's just an insight into how the other person is. How, you know, I always say head, heart, and hands. How are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you doing? And the more I can have empathy and understand who you are and what matters, the more I have permission to be together with you and help you and in turn, you help me. You know, we have people that we walk by every day, whether we're standing in a line at a grocery store, we could be talking to a neighbor who lives five doors down instead of the one beside us, but we've never exchanged a conversation with them. This is really about awakening all Canadians to the importance of connection and getting it through many means in our daily lives. I met Pete probably about 25 years ago, young assistant brand manager at Molson. I describe him as what I would say is how Hollywood portrays a great dad. He's gregarious, he loves sports, he loves people. He's the person that's gonna be at the kids' basketball game. He's gonna be the one bringing the artists. He's just a wonderful guy. And I met him in the beer business, but what I admired the most about Pete is two major changes in his career. And how, especially with this latest one, he has the ability to impact millions of people and to get people to focus on what really matters. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. It's Tony Chapman. We're live today. And in the audience are people that work for the town of Innisville, County of Simcoe, and Barrie, talking to Peter Bombacci about loneliness and why it matters. So I always title my episodes, and this is going to be from selling suds to handing out hugs. And we'll explain that in a minute. But you're the youngest of three kids. Yep. And you grew up sort of dead center Toronto. What was life like for you as a child? Um, I've shared this in a lot of my presentations. My life was uh, ball hockey every day after school. It was hanging out with the 10 kids that were always on the street because uh, if my brother got the TV or my sister got the TV and wanted to watch something that I didn't want to watch, I wasn't hanging around inside. So I was outside playing. You know, it was the greatest conflict in my life because we had my sisters beat me home. She wanted to watch Petticoat Junction. That's lame when I wanted to watch Hogan's Heroes. From what I understand and sort of reading about and doing a little bit of research, you wanted the microphone or you wanted a hockey stick. You either wanted to be sort of this musician that's going to rock your way around the world or be the next, I guess you must have been a Leaf fan, being the next, maybe bring a cup back to Toronto. That would have been, that would have been nice. Yeah. yeah. You know, I can still remember in grade six, Mr. Reynolds was my teacher. And I remember trying to do just about anything to make him laugh. 
uh, and I'll say I was an overweight kid at times. I didn't feel like I was the the cool kid on the block. And I found the way that I overcame that um, that fear was sometimes through making people laugh, making people smile. So if I could make you like me, if I could entertain you, if I could put a smile on your face, then I didn't need to worry because I would be included. And it really relates to what I do today is really that understanding of what it's like to not be included. Within your family dynamics, you had a sister who was disabled. How was that? Because back then, I have to believe there was less tolerance and acceptance. Did you ever feel that as a brother, you had to defend that or, or defend her? Or? Yeah, my sister's profoundly deaf from, from birth. And I think what I recognized is that um, everybody needs a hand. I, I never felt like I had to defend her, but I certainly knew that I had to be there for her. And certainly even up to today, it's still the phone calls will come when she needs something and will always be there. So I think I've grown up with an understanding that lots of people have struggles and we all need to be in this together to support each other. And what do you think is the biggest lesson that she blessed you with? Well, I think the big lesson for me was just we always need to make space to help other people. You know, whether it's your own family or whether it's other people, make the time. And 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 in a lot of the cases, it's not a lot of time. It's just being conscious and aware that we are all in this together. And just by helping, we can make all the difference in the world. And at age 13, you're hitting puberty. You're, you've got this sort of gregarious personality going, but your dad passes away. Yeah, my mom was a stay-at-home mom who never had worked. Um, we had three kids under the age of majority. Uh, my sister was deaf. And, um, you know, honestly, I don't think I left the house for a few days but I honestly will say, and I have some friends who've just lost uh, a dad with young kids. I didn't realize what I'd lost until I was probably 25 or 30. And it wasn't until I went through the experiences that I saw my friends go through that I really recognized it. At that point, I was just, I didn't feel like I was the same as everybody else because I was the kid with no dad. But what you realize as you go on in life is when you don't have that mentor, that guide, that that inspirational leader around you, you realize what you lose. And it's all those experiences from the first beer to the first golf game to traveling to, you know, whether it's relationship advice, all those things. Having people in your corner as we grow is critically important. And we see that big brothers, big sisters who we do work with talk about having that one important person in our lives is, is so critically important to growing up happy and healthy. Do you ever look in the mirror or someone from your friend of your dad saying, you got a lot of your dad in you? Well, my mom unfortunately passed away 10 years ago, but she had said all the way along because he died at 54. So that's uh, now 30 some years ago. She just kept saying to me over and over again, if your dad saw what you were today, you'd be he'd be very proud and you're almost the identical twin of who he was. I'm 57 now, so I'm, I feel blessed. At 54, I thought, I guess my time's up. Every day to me right now is an opportunity to make a difference. You go off to university, the whole finances change when obviously your dad was the primary breadwinner. How did you sort of grow up and realize you had to be accountable, you had to do your part, you had to find a way to open your own doors because one of your parents wasn't there to sort of slam their shoulder through for you? I think one of the things, even in the short time that I had with my dad, was a hard work ethic. And um, after I graduated from high school, I uh, went to university and shortly thereafter started working in the hospitality industry, which was 
you know, two things, a place where I made a good amount of money that I could pay my way. But most importantly, I think the hospitality industry also set the tone for me that people, it's how to get along with people, how to get along with people that you get along with and how to get along with people who don't see eye to eye with you. And it's still about the same thing, which is having conversation and over the, over a bar or across a table, engaging with people was the experience that made me feel like I could a make a living, but also do it in a way that made me feel really happy. Did you hone your insights in the bars? Because a lot of people play in the bar just to kind of for the tips, but it sounded to me you were more like the Kelsey grammar that was sort of trying to get to know everybody and understand everybody. I wasn't conscious of it at the time, but I learned two things. Number one, yes, tips came when you built relationships with people, but I built relationships with people. I didn't do it for the money. I did what made me feel good. I did what made, I could see it on people's faces. And I knew the person that came every day at 1230 and didn't leave till 530 And I felt sorry for that individual, but I knew that I was an important relationship in his life. And I can still, I could name five of them right now as I sit here, because that's the type of relationship that I had with those people. So it was about, you know, at some point making money, but more importantly, it was building authentic relationships. You move into Molson after universities where I first met you. Molson was a survival of the fittest shop. I mean, it was, it was very sales oriented, very demanding. You sort of had to do it the Molson way. And you were a bit of an outlier in the sense that, you know, people respected you and they listened to you, but you didn't necessarily grab last year's playbook and say, we're going to do that again. You kind of went back to your roots about people and experiential marketing way ahead of anybody else and said, you might be better off doing more with less, creating an event or an experience that a handful of people enjoy. And in doing so, celebrate the brand versus just throw a drift net out on television and hope that they buy into this ad of opening a Molson and all of a sudden you're surrounded by the opposite sex. Uh, you know, I just say I'm a beer guy. You know, I was a guy, I still play hockey two times a week. I still sit in the dressing room. I still go out with my buddies and have beers. I knew what beer was all about, you know, and I think that was somebody's tagline. I can't remember. But the reality was I realized that it was all about people. And when I started in sales, Dave Perkins was the CEO uh, of Molson. And we were all about community. We were about connection. And so Dave would say we're the social lubricant that brought Canadians together. And so we were meant to go out and know the person who was getting married, get to know the person that was having the community event and support them, help them, help them facilitate the human interactions that made them happier and healthier. Because if we made them happier and healthier and made their lives easier, they would actually support us. And I'll even say one, I still remember a gentleman whose son needed to raise money for a wheelchair. And I remember him coming and saying, can you do anything? And I said, can I do anything? I'll give you all the beer, but all I want you to do is just remember that Molson was there for you. And that guy became my biggest ambassador in the community for the entire time that I worked at Molson. He would talk to people. He would be my biggest promoter. It was amazing. So when you actually are there for people when they need it, then they'll show you, they'll return the favor. Take me back to another, and I'm going to try to put these pieces together to where where you are today in this incredible movement you started, but the great blackout was another moment in your life where you kind of looked around, like you looked to your teacher and you looked to the people you were serving in the bar. What happened that night? Hands up if you recall the summer blackout of 2003. Keep your hands up if you had an experience where you connected with other people that night. To me, this this was the original inspiration behind 
what you now know as the Genwell Project, or by the end of this podcast, you'll know what the Genwell Project is. That night, I, I started at Molson, 410 in the afternoon, August 13, 410 in the afternoon, 15 million people on the eastern seaboard lose power for two to seven days, depending where, on where you were. Initially, everybody gets home, checks on their loved one, and traffic was crazy, lights were out. But once I got home, I actually went over to a friend's house. And that turned from a backyard party of two, then to six, then to 10. The neighbors came over. Everybody was over. And at nine o'clock at night, I walked out on the front porch. And I lived on Lawrence Avenue in Toronto. It was a busy street. So I didn't get to know a lot of people because it was, it was a pretty uh, busy thoroughfare. On this street, the street was packed with people. And I just looked at the people on the street. There was like bicycle riding, hot dogs, drinks. There was a ball hockey net, if I recall correctly. Somebody was throwing a football. And I walked out on the street because I was, as I'm apt to do, I said, hey, guys, this is amazing. You guys are all out here and you all know each other. And they looked at me and went, we don't know each other. And I thought to myself, wow, how crazy is this? It took a blackout. It took a shutting off the path for all the things that distract us every day from TVs to radios, computers, because even if you had battery power in your computer, the company systems were all shut down. So nothing worked. And so when we turned off all the distractions, guess what we did? We connected. We went out on the streets. I know people in downtown Toronto went from the 40th floor of the first Canadian uh, place and spent 12 hours drinking with their friends. Friends, people they didn't know who became friends uh, in the basement. I know people who got together with their neighbors. I know, obviously, we had a baby boom nine months later. So everybody connected because it is a human innate need. We are a social species. We need human connection to survive. And what that was, was an excuse to make it happen. And that was exactly what the Genwell weekends we have today were inspired by. The next move on the chessboard is you've got a, a great career happening at Molson. You are a bit of an outlier. You're pushing back against some of the playbooks and saying, let's live with what our CEO says and be the social lubricant versus just the beer that advertises a lot. And then you start volunteering at November. That was kind of the second time you really came on my radar. What made you go from the demands of the career early on where you're trying to move ahead on the on that chessboard to deciding that you had enough free time to invest and give back? Well, I guess it probably relates back to my sister and the fact that I always believed in giving back. So when I was at Molson, I came across this thing called Movember where people grew silly mustaches for 30 days and had a lot of fun and raised money for men's health. Um, while I was at Molson, I suggested we should become the corporate sponsor for Movember. That didn't quite happen until I got there, but I instead just became the volunteer chair of the Toronto uh, Volunteer Committee and did that for a year and had a lot of fun doing it. And then when I decided to leave Molson, the head of uh, Movember from Australia was in town and he said, hey, would you think about you know, running Movember? I didn't even know it was an organization. I just thought it was a group of people having a ton of fun, raising some money, but I ended up opening up the office in Canada for Movember Canada. And we ended up within three years, we were raising $42 million in 30 days in the month of November. What advice do you give to people in terms of getting people to, to give? What did you do at Movember that instead of just being a silly mustache, it meant a lot more? I, I hate to keep banging the drum, but it was because, uh, you know, we were one of 22 countries around the world 
that had Movember campaigns. Canada was the number one campaign for the five years I was there, fundraising wise. My team and myself were focused 100% on connection and community. We brought people together so many times, people were tired of us, but we built connections between people so that they knew that Tony was in and Pete was in and Tony had shared his story with me and Pete has shared his story with somebody. So it was all about building a community of people. And let's be clear, at the end of the day, you know, it, it came down to connection. And when we brought people together, it wasn't the cool people that were showing up. It was the people that were looking and using the mustache as a means to be part of a community. I remember going to CIBC and having a conversation there with the head of the, the bank there. And they brought about 50 or 60 people together into a room. And what was really powerful is the gentleman who won the top mustache was a, a new kid. He'd been there a few years and he had an amazing, beautiful mustache and there he is taking photos with the CEO of the company, who I'm sure he would have never had the opportunity to connect with before if it hadn't have been for a mustache growing contest. And so it was an opportunity. It didn't matter whether you were the president, you were the mailroom, you were the busboy, you were the whatever you were in society. When you had a mustache in Movember, we were all Mobros and Mosistas. And that was the power of Movember. And so now I want to move into the Genwell project. Why don't we first begin by explaining what it is, why it matters to you, why it matters to Canadians, why you hope one day it'll matter to the world. Yeah, the Genwell project is Canada's human connection movement. Since 2016, we're a Canadian not-for-profit and our mission is to make the world a happier and healthier place by educating Canadians about the importance of face-to-face -face social connection for our health, our happiness, our longevity, and for the betterment of society. And we've been sharing that message through our website and through our social channels for seven years. And we do programming in schools, workplaces, and communities. And the research tells us today, we've been educating people on exercise for 50 years, um, eating well for 80. We know not to smoke too much, well, not to smoke, not to drink too much, um, to sleep eight hours and to drink eight glasses of water each day. But we've never educated people about the importance of social connection. And the research today now shows it's as important, if not more important, than all of those that we've been educating people on. And it wasn't until we went through a global pandemic where we had our relationships ripped from our lives for two years when we started to wake up and recognize how much we actually needed each other. And this isn't just in the workplace. It's not just in the community. It's not just with our neighbors. It's talking to strangers. It's all of it. We're a social health movement. And the message around the social health movement, exercise, we've told people you can go for a walk, you can go for a run, you are empowered. Even with mental health, we've said mindfulness, gratitude, journaling, breathing techniques, you can do it. When it comes to social health, you can't do it alone. I need Tony. When I reach out to Tony, Tony needs to pick up the phone. When I think of somebody who's going through a struggle, a divorce, a job loss, financial pressure, illness, whatever that challenge might be in life, this isn't just a senior's issue. This is an everybody issue because we can all feel lonely and disconnected at times in our lives. And when it comes to social health, we need each other more than ever before. So I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, Jean-Francois Archambault, who his mission was to take the food that was going into landfills and repurpose it. Over the last 20 years, they've served 15 million meals and tens of thousands of tons of food. They can measure what they're doing. They can measure it because they can say meals, tons saved. How do you measure 
what you're doing, because to a lot of people, when you're looking, come join this movement, invest in this movement. They like to see metrics. There'll be a few ways in which we'll do this. We have a full scientific advisory panel, but I think the starting point is understanding what are the negative consequences to a disconnected world. So heart disease increases by over 30%, doubles your risk of type two diabetes after the age of 50, 50% increase in your onset of early dementia. It's connected to obesity, suicide, addiction. Really, when we're lonely and we feel disconnected from other people, it results in inflammation in the body, which leads to just about every type of illness that we face. So the reality is those stats are there. And that research, by the way, isn't new. Most of this research has been around for 20, 30 years. And so what it is is really about awakening people. But again, the, the lens that I also want to look at this through is I always, you know, we're a human connection movement, not a loneliness campaign. We want to focus on the positive. We want to focus on the solution. So here's the stats about what we, what we thrive on when we are socially connected, single largest contributor to happiness in our lives. That's the 80 year study out of Harvard increases empathy, compassion, and resilience. And I think we could use a little more of that everywhere we go in society right now reduces anxiety and depression, which in some cases are at the highest levels in Canadian history, strengthens your immune system, your self-confidence at a time when more people are dealing with social anxiety coming out of the global pandemic than ever before, increases your chances of living longer by up to 50% when we had healthy relationships. In a study that came out during the global pandemic, the single greatest preventative action to avoid depression. And yet we haven't been, you know, telling this from the top of every building in downtown Toronto, in Innisfil, in Barrie, and everywhere we go, because everybody needs to know this information and needs to recognize it's part of your home, your street, your community, your workplace, your classroom, because we need this information more than ever. Let's talk about the workplace, because, you know, the things that are important to them is retention, animating dreams, getting people to be, to buy in, do transformative work versus transactional work. What role does what you're offering through the GenWell project, how does it play into the workplace? Because together isn't just simply, oh, I had to go in Wednesday because you know they wanted us in. It's, it's being together. It's leading together. We could do an hour on this topic alone. So the research we've done in Canada through the Canadian Social Connection Survey, the relationships we have with our colleagues have a greater impact on our happiness and reduced sense of loneliness than our own family and friends. And a lot of people might question that and go, how is that possible? Well, we can all take our family and friends for granted. I think we did a lot of that pre-pandemic. But number two is that when you spend eight to 10 hours a day toiling away at whatever it is you do, having positive relationships, not only does that improve information flow, does that improve energy, trust, loyalty, respect, all those things that you want when you're working in a team, but it actually makes us happier and healthier. So when we think of what are the impacts, it reduces attrition by 41%, increases productivity by up to 22%. There's so many benefits that come both to the people and to the business when we build healthy relationships. The problem I think we've done, and we've kind of looked at this in the past, Tony, is we've done this very reactive. When we think of our EAP programs, when somebody collapsed, we handed them the phone number and said, there's the 1-800 number, we got you covered. And I think where businesses are going now is to say, what am I doing to actually proactively build healthy connections so that I can make you happier and healthier as a human being? Because let's assume that everybody here believes that we need to create happy and healthy people who become employees, 
and that they're not just the employees between nine and five. Because if I can make you thrive as a human being, you'll run through a wall for me. But if I only treat you as an employee between nine and five and don't worry about you outside of those hours, then that to me is where burnout comes. Because I just worry about you getting the job done, but not worry about you as a human being. So, so the counterpoint, geez, I kind of like hybrid working. I can, pajamas are pretty comfortable. I can organize my life a little bit better. And the other side, you're saying, yeah, but the, the problem could be loneliness. It could be isolation. You're not taking advantage of a thriving culture. How do you make that tangible enough for people to go, you know, sometimes that little bit of effort going to the office can pay massive dividends, not for the sense of the organization, as we know it will, but for the individual in terms of showing up and being face-to-face. I think you just have to share the facts with them because we've never, we've never talked about it in these terms before of all the benefits that come to you as a human being. And I think once people recognize that this is about your happiness, your health, this is about, you know, if you're a young person, it's about mentorship. It's about moving up in the organization. If you're an older employee, as we get older, we lose our friendships along the way. So building those uh, uh, relationships with younger employees, the opportunity to coach people. Somebody was there for you when you were 25 and took you out for a beer or a coffee. All the benefits that come to young and old I just don't think we were conscious about them before. So some people do that naturally, but is there things that you can offer that make it less frictionless? Are you an advocate for bringing mentorship programs in or, or collaborating or, or mixing up teams to work together and problem solving? What are some of the things that tools that we can use in the workplace that people go home and say, that was a great day worked? Number one, educating. If you don't understand the why, Simon Sinek, for those of you uh, who are big marketing gurus out there, if I don't understand the why, then why should I engage in this these relationships with my fellow employees? Number two, we have to recognize not everybody wants to come to the big group outing. So we implement a random coffee program, which says every two weeks, you're going to get randomly connected with somebody else in your organization, because that way it gives you the skill training of one-on-one conversations. And when there's no expectation that it's random, then there's no, I, I don't go into it with that nervousness. It's just, hey, Oliver, how are you doing? Tell me about yourself. Hey, what do you like to do outside of work? And then we encourage organizations once a month by team and once a quarter by organization. What are you doing to help facilitate? Ask your people, what would you love to do? What would you love to learn about? It doesn't always need, and this was always a habit back in the beer business. It was always about eating and drinking, and it was always after work. If you really believe in the power of human connection, it has to be during the workday. You're going to take time away from the workday because you understand the benefits to your employees and to the business about building healthy relationships. Don't make them take time away from their families and other things that they want to do. And then ask them what they want to do. If we go and learn about financial well-being together and we share knowledge and now we come out of it and I say, hey, Tony, what did you think about that? Hey, where are you going to get your mortgage? And we start building human beings that are thriving because we've invested in them and their learning and knowledge. That's how people become champions for you as a business leader and as an organization. When we come back, Peter and I wrap up take some questions from the audience, my three takeaways, and then I invite Amy Deacon to talk about why loneliness is so prevalent in our society. It's Tony Chapman from Chatter That Matters. 
I asked Canadians about their money matters. We talked debt, inflation, interest rates, and many were worried and some felt they could lose everything. In response, RBC has created My Money Matters. It's a site where you gain financial knowledge. You learn how to manage debt, reduce stress. There's even tools and apps to help you deal with the realities of today. Visit rbc.com slash money matters. Your financial well-being matters to you and to RBC. You know, because a lot of the social structures that were in our lives before the pandemic, we went to the gym. We used to go to the grocery store to get groceries. We used to go to the office and have a walk to the coffee shop or the lunchroom or all the different places we went. Those have been removed from our lives. And I think when we think about the opportunity that stays within talking to strangers, that we know that those who talk to strangers are three times as happy. And we know that over 90% of the time, it's a positive experience. I think I have a gap filler that may actually help people feel a greater sense of connection, trust, empathy, compassion, belonging. And it's called take a chance and maybe talk to a stranger. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Peter Bombacci is my guest today. He's the founder of the Genwell Project. And we're live with people that work for the town of Innisfil, County of Simcoe, and Barrie. For the first four or five years, this was tough sledding for you. You believed in your North Star, but a lot of people were trying to throw a blanket over. Is it just because friends and family couldn't understand your dream? Was it your failure to animate it? Or was their inability to accept the fact that this is a North Star that we should all be following? You know, Tony, I still don't know the answer because I don't think I've changed my message in seven years. I might change a little bit of the language here and there, but the same message that I've been saying since September of 2016 is the same message I share today. You know, in the first five years, I couldn't get a meeting with anybody, whether that was a business leader, a community leader, a classroom. Actually, I will say students and professors at universities and colleges were the people who were most likely to engage. And I don't know if it was because they were thinking ahead, but they were open to a new approach to making people happier and healthier. But it was, this has been the loneliest journey how ironic, the loneliest journey in my life, trying to launch a movement around human connection. When you talk about universities, I read a statistic as I was preparing for this, that this sort of that 18 to 24, maybe 26 years old, is the loneliest of the lonely. And they cited social media, looking for confirmation, validation, uh, chasing the Kardashians, chasing false beauty stereotypes, everybody living the most interesting life poured cement on people's feet. They just felt they couldn't participate because they, much the way you might've felt, as you said, younger, when I wasn't necessarily the, the thinnest or the, you know, the most athletic, I, I had some self-esteem issues. They say it's, it's quite pronounced. Are you seeing that in your research? 100%. And if you just look at it, less time outside and more time on screen, less time outside with people. There's never 10 kids on the street and more time on screens. We're in that hyper-competitive you know, to your point, the human highlight reel that we're all watching every day, that's just a bad combination. I, I wouldn't want to grow up as a kid today. And my message to everybody that's listening to the podcast and in the room today is we need to recognize that we are part of the solution for young people. When you know a young person who's struggling or spending too much time on their phone, your responsibility is to go, hey, you want to go for a walk? You want to go shoot some hoops? Do you want to go have a coffee? When it comes to the work we're trying to do, it's not just telling the people that are lonely or struggling or isolated, you should buck up, pal, and you should go be more social. 
It's the wake-up call to all of us that whether it's a senior, whether it's a young person, whether it's somebody who's working too much, all of us have an opportunity to be part of the solution to building a more connected Canada. But Pete, sometimes I stick my head out of the sand. I look around outside and I see the growing face of poverty. My news is telling me that the planet's going to burn up. There's a lot of things that I can't control. And if I stay within social media, I'm almost a pinball bouncing between these articles. I would argue some of those people are just escaping to their Minecrafts or whatever they're doing because it's where they feel they're a little bit more in control. So how do you counter that? Because what I'm hearing from you and what I certainly read about some of the great work you're doing is that's only manifesting itself in more physical and mental health issues versus you've got to fight your way back. So tell us about how we do that individually. People here in this room have got kids, they've got elderly parents. Give us a couple, two or three things that we should be doing as we join the GenWell project. This is about making uh, social connection a bigger priority and being more conscious and intentional about it. And that's across the lifespan, whether you're a young person, if I can get you to cut back, I just heard yesterday, the average young person today is now seven to eight hours a day on screens between TVs and iPads and, and phones. And so what we need to do is be more conscious about what are we doing with our time. If we sleep eight hours a day and we're on screens eight hours a day and we're at school or work eight hours a day, where's the time left for social connection? We received a grant from the Canadian government to build the social connection guidelines for Canadians. Those are coming out early in 2025. And the number is starting to show it's about two to three hours a day that are the recommended guidelines for how much time we need to be spending socializing with people, not working with people, not in the depth of a meeting, but those fringe conversations going into the meeting, coming out of the meeting, to the neighbor, to the stranger, to your family. These are all understanding and the education is the starting point and then making a priority like we do the gym every Thursday at four o'clock. I go to the gym. I play hockey Monday nights. I need to do the same thing with social connection. Volunteering is a great way to get connected with people, not for the give. The give is amazing. We've talked about that for 50 years, but actually surrounding yourself with other empathetic and compassionate people that are wanting to do good. Because if you're struggling to connect with other people, whether it's because you're introverted, you're socially anxious, giving your time to other people is a great way to meet other empathetic and compassionate people. So whether it's talking to a stranger, our research shows those who talk to a stranger once a week are three times happier than those who don't talk to a stranger. And some of you may know, we've been telling people for 50 years, don't talk to strangers. So there's so many little things. Those who spend one to four hours a week with their neighbor are three times less lonely than those who don't know their neighbor. And yet pre-pandemic, 50% of Canadians didn't know their neighbor's name. And so it's, it's death by a thousand cuts. If we wake people up to all these opportunities that are around us each and every day, and we start to give people the permission to talk to our neighbor to talk to a stranger, to actually build relationships with our colleagues as we recognize there's something in it for us, then bit by bit, I think we can create a society in which we all say, hey, I will do that today because I know it's not only good for me, but it's good for you and it's good for everybody in our society. So you're saying it was really lonely for me the first five years, even though my message was consistent, nobody would take meetings. I felt quite isolated. Friends were saying, it's time you get back to a full-time job. <laughs> But you persevered. Was there anybody along the way that was your Yoda that helped you get to where you want, deserve 
to go. I, I would have stopped this 27 times if it hadn't have been for every person who reached out. There's a Catholic school teacher in Toronto who, with every newsletter, would send me a note and say, thank you so much for doing what you're doing. I've asked him for coffee eight times. He refuses. He's like, it's not, you don't need to coffee with me. I just want to let you know. But there's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Quam McKenzie who's at the Wellesley Institute. He also works at CAMH and he also is a professor at U of T. In, in 2017, uh, a friend of mine saw him speak somewhere, spoke to him after he spoke at this particular uh, conference and said, you need to meet my friend Pete Bambachi. So I went, I had a meeting with Quam. To be honest with you, I did no research on him. So I went in because I just didn't think anybody would understand. Well, Quam is, uh, he just spent much of his time at the World Health Organization over the last few years. He's a global expert on the social determinants of health. And after a 30-minute meeting in his office, he looked at me and he said, you will be very successful with this movement. He said, but you need to know one thing. And I, first off, I choked up at the time. And he said, you need to be patient because most people have no idea what you're talking about. Now, I don't think he knew that there was a global pandemic coming two and a half years later, but he knew exactly what he was talking about, is that we all need human connection. We are a social species. We need each other. And he just realized that it took time to get people to a point, including a two-year pandemic, to get us all to realize that. So I want to end with sharing this story with all of you. And I was in a room like you were about 20, 25 years ago. And in those days, the speakers came up, they had pinstripe suits and their initials on their sleeves, and suspenders. And it's right after lunch, just when you're, you're lulling yourself. And this guy comes on the stage dragging a coat rack and he had a hat on the top of it, old hat, wearing hiking gear. So right away, paid attention. And attention is the oxygen of life. The only, the only way you could teach and coach and mentor and be together is by getting the attention of the people that matter most here. So I started paying attention. He referenced the hat. He said, you know, there's times in my life where I've just got to get away. I just got to turn off the screens. And the way I decompress and meditate is I go hiking off the beaten path. So my grandfather taught me to hike. This was his hat. And every once in a while, I'd be running down to work and that hat would suddenly talk to me and say, it's time. So I put on my, my hiking boots in the city and my toes would gnarl up and I, I couldn't, they couldn't breathe in the pavement. So, but by the time I got out of the car and started walking along the path, I could hear twigs crack under them. So it was out this June day and it was a beautiful day and the, the, the greens were just those magical greens and temperature when you're in the sun, you were delaring, but in the shade, it was still chilling. So it was so quiet. I could, I, it's like I could hear the birds sing in the thermals 2,000 feet above me. And as he's going along and he knows he's got to head west, he sort of makes this almost a corner on this trail and he starts hearing this horrible noise. And what he does is he walks into a rock quarry and he says, it's like the juxtaposition. I mean, I wasn't hearing birds anymore. I was seeing these look like ants up and down the mountain, defacing the mountain. They were just cutting away the mountain and, and the dust and the dirt. And he said, he has to kind of get through it. And he goes up to the first person and says, what are you doing there? And he said, what do you mean what I'm doing? We're cutting rock. He kind of runs into another person, same question. gets a very similar answer. And finally, just as he's leaving, a third person is doing the same job, a woman. Same job. But she's singing and she's skipping and she's happy. What's happening here? She says, I'm part of a team. And together, we're going to build a great cathedral. It's one of the oldest stories ever. It probably never happened. But the metaphor that he offered me that day, and I think it's a big part of why we're paying attention to people like Pete, is the power of stories. Personalizing. So we take it personal. 
you know, when we hear numbers, 82%, 85,000, tonight 8,500 people will be looking for a shelter. It's hard to even react. It's hard to move. But when you start hearing about people in, in lives that are impacted and making a difference, you understand what together is all about. We're here to take some questions. And I hear this is a very engaged audience. So anybody want to begin? Just wondering how we're able to help build connection when on a daily basis we face sort of a wall of cynicism. How can you produce that connection and encourage people when you have to fight that every day? I hear this a lot and I hear it actually from the employees when an employer has not always been authentic in the efforts that they've made to build uh, an ongoing connectivity within the workforce. And so if it's authentic, then just keep doing it. Because at the end of the day, eventually people will start to say, oh my gosh, they really do care. Because again, pre-pandemic, I think many of us as business leaders may not have valued our people quite the way that we now have to. If we want people to stay, if we don't want people to leave, we need to demonstrate that we actually care about them as human beings. And so I think it really is about being consistent, being authentic, and being real about everything that you do in saying, I care about you as a person because together we're going to run through this wall. We're going to be successful in what we do. Can I answer a question that hasn't been asked? Yeah. The number one question after every presentation is always, but I'm an introvert. How does this relate to me? So here's what the research shows. Introverts need human connection as much as extroverts do. You just have some, some ways in which you like it to happen. So you want to be in control. You want to choose the place, be comfortable with the place. You want to do it in smaller groups, and you may not need it as often. But please don't think you don't need human connection as well. And as business leaders, look around your room, look around your team, and recognize not everybody wants to get together for the big you know, holiday party or the big barbecue, that they may actually need a coffee, a tea, a, a glass of water, or a beer, and it's one-on-one. -on -one. And recognizing the difference amongst your team is so critically important because I think we've gotten into the habit of just saying, oh, big party, we're going to do it, everybody come. But recognizing that that wasn't actually fulfilling for some people on your team. As a leader, my biggest fear is AI. And I'm not talking artificial intelligence. I'm talking about anonymous interaction where we have situations where people are in meetings, don't have their cameras turned on, are not engaged or we have people asking questions in a room anonymously. When you have a majority of the questions being asked anonymously, maybe that's a sign that there isn't a good culture of trust. How do you perceive turning it around and helping leaders manage that anonymous interaction that we're beginning to face more and more each day? For me, it's about being consistent and authentic, but it's also setting the standard it's here's what we are going to do. Here's the organization that we want to build. This is an organization where we understand I need you to show up on the screen. And yes, there's going to be the exception on the occasional day. Look, I'm sick. I've got the flu. I look like a piece of, you know, and, and for that reason, I can't be there. But when we set the expectation as to what our organization does, not because it's about you as the employee or me as the boss, because we are in this together and we need to see it. Then we bring in the consistency message that says, we are always doing this. We're working not just to work. The brain activity face-to-face -face is nine times greater 
than when we're on Zoom. So what we need to understand in all the things that we're doing, Zoom is a great supplement to the human interactions that keep us happier and healthier, but we cannot just depend on that. So we may have the meetings. Let's make sure that we're making the majority of them face-to-face. -face. Let's make sure we educate our people on why face-to-face -face is so important to them, to you, to your colleagues, and to the organization. Let's be consistent with how we do it. And over time, and I will finish with one thing that I, I think is often not spoken about. You know, we're all in a big pilot test right now because we've come out to the other side of the global pandemic. Nobody knows where this is going to go. We don't know what the long-term implications of two years apart, other than we can see mental health issues are growing, physical health issues. Unless there's a mental health issue which requires a different approach, at some point you may have to have a tough conversation and say, maybe there's a better place for you to work. But that takes time. You have to show the authenticity. You have to set the expectation. You have to run it for a period of time. Then you can actually have that conversation. If you start with that, that's obviously not going to be fair to the employee. But I think we all want to go through that process to say, hey, what is our expectation as an organization? Let's live it. Let's build a plan and a strategy to execute it. And hopefully by the end of six months, a year, maybe it's two, because we're all experiencing this together. We create an organization where people walk in every day, giving each other high fives because they feel connected. They feel like we care about each other and that we all are part of this team together. So I always end my podcast with my three takeaways. And Pete, I think the first thing that I love about you is how simple, yet how passionate you get your points of view. You're not trying to be the smartest person in the room. You're not citing a hundred scientific studies. You're just saying, I, I, listen, you might be tired of what I'm saying, but it's about connections. It's about being together. It's about saying, how are you today? It's the simple things. And it's just, so this isn't a crisis we can't solve. This is a crisis that we can collectively solve if we just embrace this concept of together. I think the second thing that I always admired about you is your humanity. It's always roared, even when you were in the beer business, it was the handshakes and how are you? And let's sit down, let's catch up. And I was just dying to sell you something and coming in my latest promotion. You just, you were always about human connections. And it's so interesting to see along the way, the people that you name. And I bet you could describe if they had dandruff on the shoulder, your teacher, <laughs> because you just, you're, you go right back into that moment when you're talking about it. Amazing. And then the third thing is, Almost the sad thing is how crises have seemed to help you with your movement. First, the blackout, where you fruitly had the insight saying, why don't we know each other? And then the pandemic that made people really realize what it was like to go to Facebook instead of face-to-face. -face. So for all of that and more, my friend, starting a non-for-profit is difficult. Joining and running a non-for-profit is difficult. But to actually create and start a movement and to go from zero, I know the first five years were painful, but for the last two years, you're everywhere spreading the love. I thank you for being on Chatter That Matters and being part of this group. Thanks, Tony. Joining me on this episode of Chatter That Matters is Amy Deacon. She's the founder and CEO of Toronto Wellness Counseling. I want to get rid of the Toronto. I want to call it World Wellness Counseling. Because you have such an incredible worldview and perspective. Thank you, Tony. Somebody I've known for decades, Peter Bombacci, he used to be a beer guy. And then he got involved with a charity, Movember, and realized that he had a higher purpose in life. That he had the ability to connect with people. 
And now he's created the Genwell Project, which is all about loneliness and connections. How is it possible when you see people connecting to five different screens and posting their most interesting life that this can be the lonely generation? Because we're distracted. Just because something has our attention doesn't mean that it has our dedication and our commitment. And relationships require dedication, commitment, concerted effort. And I think the other thing with these parasocial relationships is they just thrive off the dopamine hits, the likes, the likes, the comments, whatever it may be. It's so cheap. It's so cheap. One of the biggest things that I see younger people struggling with is conflict, right? It's almost like we've lost the art of having challenging, hard conversations. If we're having a hard conversation, the person's got to be canceled, right? We don't know how to wrestle in relationships. And that's an absolute ingredient for decade-long friendships or, or marriages or whatever it may be. There is a false ease that comes with the social media relationships that isn't replicated in the real world. I think that's that's one of the biggest contributing factors. And when somebody comes in or a parent talks to you about that generation that seems to be lonely and sad and not connected, what advice do you either bring to the individual feeling that or their parents feeling that their children are going through that. It's so funny that you mentioned this. this. This is something that we saw huge over this past summer and kind of leading up to it. And my therapist and I, we had a conversation just kind of figuring out what do we want to do? What do we want to recommend? And so one of the recommendations that we gave was that for families to spend quality time together where perhaps they went camping or they went up north or, but they put the devices away and they just spent time together. And so that's not only incredibly bonding, but I think for a lot of parents, myself included, we have to be aware of, are we on our devices? Are we checking our emails at dinner? Are we replying to somebody's message, right? Are we are we leading by example in terms of how we prioritize our real life relationships? I think it's one thing to preach and it's another thing to practice and we need to lead by example and practice. And how about the sense that people are capturing their life at the speed of life? I mean, whether it's parents taking pictures of their children, children taking pictures of each other. I mean, it seems to be we're constantly trying to present this persona out there. We have the happiest kid or we are the happiest family. Is that healthy? No, it, it hijacks us from the moment, right? If you're so focused on making sure that the photo is perfect and filtered and edited, and what is that? And who is that for? Is that really in the best interest of you and your family and the health of your children? Or is that because it's become almost socially, it's, it's now the norm to project an image of perfection that nobody can live up to. So we post the image, we get the likes, but then behind the scenes, We feel deflated because we can't keep up with this. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening. And let's chat soon. 